So in this course, we're only going up to the Reformation. Uh, if you just stay at the names and dates and who married who and who killed who level, church history, uh, any type of history, is pretty boring. In order for it to really capture your imagination, you have to get into the lives of these people. You have to, to zoom in. So that's one thing I, I hope to do was to be able to zoom in. But in so doing that, I hope I'm going to leave some gaps. So just please be gracious with me. And what I want to do is to just leave you hungering for more. I've got some recommended resources. Uh, church history is so beneficial to study. So that's the first thing I want to address today. Why, why should you care about church history? Can everybody hear me okay? Uh, Luke wrote, the Apostle Luke wrote the Acts of Jesus in his Gospel, Luke. But then he wrote the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And the, the book of Acts is open-ended. It doesn't have a, a tidy end. It just stops mid-story. And I think Luke had a theological reason for that. The story, or the acts of the Holy Spirit, continued long after the New Testament. So when we're studying history, we're studying the acts of the Holy Spirit. But we're also studying the acts of fallible, fallen human beings. And so, because of that, I ask you to be gracious again, when, because these men that we're going to be looking at are very fallible men, some of them made colossal blunders. Some of them had blind spots. Some of them held to positions that today we would write off as heretical and we wonder how could the Holy Spirit ever use such a person like that. But the thing you find when you look at history, when you compare different ages, different epochs, epochs, you notice that each age has blind spots that the other ages will see more clearly. I mean, we look back at the... Uh, early Americans for holding slaves. And we wonder, were any of them really truly Christians for holding slaves? But you get into their writings, yes, that was a major blind spot. You know, we have blind spots, but because they're blind spots, we don't know what they are. So, but I ask you to be gracious with these men and with me as I tell their story. Uh, be, care be careful before casting judgment. We're going to get into some theological issues that you probably don't agree with that I don't agree with, but I'm going to do my best to try to put you in their shoes. So when we talk about church structure, if you come from a church that is very non-institutionalized, that has a very relaxed format, you're going to really bristle when you see the different ways the church has been an institution. But I want you to hold judgment. I want, you to put, I want to put you in their shoes. What was it like for them? when they wrestled with these decisions. And based on what they knew, would you have done any different? And most of all, I want to just tell their story. Church history is the story of our spiritual ancestors. We all have grown up in a culture that has been greatly influenced by Christ. When you look back at some of the barbaric times, and you're going to see a lot of those in the next few days, and you look at the civilization that you grew up in, the cause of that civilization is rooted in Christian principles, of Christian love, Christian absolute morals. And we got to this relatively Christian-influenced nation by the sweat and blood and sacrifice 
of many men who changed us. And I want to honor those men today with some of their stories and thank them for the sacrifices that they make. Uh, another reason to look at church history is back to that blind spot issue. You know, the past influences how we interpret the present. We grew up, grown up with a version of Christianity, and we tend to think, we read, our, we read the Bible with the presuppositions, with the in, coloring that we've been raised with. And if you're not aware that you are wearing glasses, that you have a, a tinted perspective of reality, you're going to think that your interpretation is the infallible word of God. God's word is infallible and it does not err. But we err and we make mistakes of interpretation. When we say Jesus Christ died for our sins, most of us as evangelicals, we have Anselm, who came up with the substitution theory of atonement, whispering into our ears. Uh, did I say when Jesus dies for our sins? Yeah, and when we say the just shall live by faith, we have Martin Luther's interpretation of that. Do these men get it right? That's for you to seek the Holy Spirit and look through Scripture. But the thing is, your interpretation, you have these men, their influence, coloring your interpretation. And unless you know that, you won't really question it. And this is why we'll see uh, men like Thomas Aquinas, who, brilliant theologians, accepting rather heinous doctrines because he didn't want to be rebellious to the church. He just grew up with these assumptions. So that's one thing you're going to uh, see. Another reason to study church history, this actually comes from a, a Roman historian, is that it's valuable because you get to behold lessons of every kind of experiment, and from these you may choose which to imitate and which is shameful. Church history, history itself is a wonderful test too, where you can if you have different hypotheses, theories about how government should be run, how the church body should be run, what the ideal Christian state should be, the chances are that you will find a historical counterpart to that. And you'll be able to see how did it work, what mistakes did they make, where did it go wrong. Finally, you are in the process of creating history. Someday historians are going to write about your generation, your time period whether it's by your actions, how you changed it, or your inactions, you're going to be judged by that. So in these decisions you make and you're affecting history, look, take a look at some of these decisions that these men that I'm going to tell you about made, and you can try to avoid their mistakes or copy their courage. Let's get started. When uh, Jesus was crucified on the cross, Pilate had an inscription put above his cross. Does anybody remember what that said? Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. It was, lit, it was written in three languages. Does anybody remember what those were? Or Latin, yeah. Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Latin and Aramaic are similar, as far as I know. It's part of that bluffing. <laughs> but there's three cultures that God shaped to spread, the, the, to spread this gospel, to spread his Christianity. Galatians says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. So I just want to touch briefly on the background. As you know, uh, Alexander the Great conquered much of Europe. He left, along with his philosophers who came behind him, some intellectual framework to see the world. Christianity borrowed from those, some philosophical terms 
like the Logos, which we'll get to tonight. The Apostle John said the Logos in the beginning was the Word or the Logos. The Logos was with God and the Logos was God. The Hebrews, of course, were God's chosen people. The Hebrews were a religion of history, which is really something. History mattered to the Jews because their theological assumption was that God revealed himself in history. He didn't just reveal himself in nature or in a mystical seance. He revealed himself in the acts of his people, in his mighty acts. And if you read the Old Testament, you constantly see God saying, write this down, remember this. This is how I'm revealing myself and how I act with you. And so that continues on in this New Testament period. God is continuing to work. But he also prepared a culture that was very conducive to the spread of the gospel. The Roman Empire had come to, had conquered much of its territory by around BC 31. Uh, from the period of BC 31 to Marcus Aurelius' reign in 180 is a time known as Pax Romana, or Roman peace. Um, by the way, at the end of every session, there's going to be a review quiz, and it's going to be a game pitting genders against each other. Uh, it's going to be like Jeopardy in the sense the first one to stand up gets the right to answer it. If you answer correctly, you get the points. If you answer incorrectly, your team loses the points. And at the end of the weekend, the gender that wins, every single one of you of that gender, gets a, a reward. I'm going to, in all fairness, because we're going to be moving through this material quite quickly, I'm going to try to tell you when something's in the quiz. I may forget. That's the thing. You can write down the answer right then, but there's a precondition to that, that when you stand up to give your answer, you cannot be reading. You'll be disqualified. So you can check your notes, put it down, and then stand up, but when you give the answer, you can't read it. But Pax Romana was from BC 31 to 180 AD. This was a time of Roman peace where the seas were free for the most part of, pir of pirates. There was a postal system that was government run, was fairly reliable compared to anything else. There was roads, incredible roads. I mean, if you get into how they, they did this, the work they put into these roads with, you know, eight to 10 feet of depth along the road and, and well-designed so the water would run off. And these roads are still being driven on today. That's how strong the foundation is. But these roads were also heavily guarded so that people were free and trade was free. Traders were free to move through the country. What this allowed was for the ideas of Christianity to spread rapidly through the letters, through the traders who picked up this religion, this ideas, and took it to their own parts of the world. So that part of Christianity was conducive to the spread. There were some factors against it. There was persecution from the Jews and persecution from the Romans. At first, the persecution only came from the Jews. The Romans saw Christianity as just a subset of Judaism. They didn't see a distinction between them at first. The Jews had won the right 
to not have to sacrifice to the Roman gods. The Roman people, for the most part, were very tolerant. They allowed you to keep your religion as long as you would offer incense or worship the Roman emperor. If you did that, you were okay. The Jews, however, were the one group that were given legal sanction and they didn't have to offer to the gods. Um, so at first, Christianity was just a subset of Judaism. Now, this is another thing to consider, is the tension between the coming of the New Covenant and the last days of the Old Covenant. What that would have been like for a Jew. For the past thousands of years, as a Jew, people have tried all kinds of methods to get you to change your religious beliefs. But not persecution, not death, nothing was changing these Jews' beliefs. And now, a man comes on the scene and starts telling you some radically different things about the way to interact with God. What makes this man different from all the other men who have tried you to become an apostate? Jews, a lot of Jews felt that to change some of your core religious beliefs, you were becoming an apostate. And when this Christianity, this new thing, a lot of them saw it as a deviation, as a, her as a Jewish heresy, as a cult. At the long with this, there was a real expectation of a Messiah. For the Jews, the Messiah was the person who was going to set up a political kingdom and overthrow the Roman Empire. The prophecies of Daniel had given them this expectation. They saw in the prophecies of Daniel, when they studied, they saw the Greek empires, uh, the, the Babylonians, the Media Persians, and the Greeks, and then a fourth kingdom, the Rome. And the prophecy of Daniel said that in that day, we would set up a kingdom. So there was this great messianic expectation. Uh, when Jesus warns that there'll be many people saying, I am the Christ, and he warns them, do not go after that, many people were claiming, to, lots of people were naming their son Jesus because that meant Savior, Messiah. This is what eventually got Jerusalem or Israel in trouble with the Romans because so many different messiahs were rising up and finally the Roman Empire had to stamp them out. So there was this expectation, but I think something curious is going on here. Peter, when he says that this is the, these are the last days that they're living in, it's, it's very puzzling. And I don't know if the last days means the entire time period before, I mean, from when Jesus left the earth to when Jesus returns. Or some people think the last days that they were referring to there refer to the last days of the Old Covenant. Have you ever thought about what this overlap would have looked like to the Jews? Like, God was offering forgiveness of your sins through the sacrificial system. When did that stop? Did that stop the moment Jesus died? Or do you think God had a grace period where honest Jews who had yet to hear the gospel message were still seeking God under the old covenant? I'm not going to make any dogmatic claims here, but it seems to me there's a possibility that he allowed a grace period for the old covenant. And it's possible that that's one thing that they meant by the last days was these are the last days of the old covenant. In the Old Testament, whenever God moved, he, he confirmed it with signs and wonders. Uh, Peter, quoting Joel, says that 
the young men would dream dreams and the old men would see visions. And there was an, a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this first century through tongues and healings. It was almost like God was telling these Israelites, look, this is me. This is me working here. You see this, this supernatural outpouring that you, you, you've been missing the supernatural. I'm pouring out this in the supernatural. But sadly, at the end of the Old Covenant, it's also tainted with judgment. Jesus, when he stood before Jerusalem, wept because he saw what was going to happen. The siege of Jerusalem, if you're not aware of it, has brought some of the, the worst suffering in quality, not in quantity, the worst quality that people had ever known. If you read Josephus' account of what happened there, what the Jews went through, you know exactly why Jesus was weeping. In Matthew 23, he says, you look, in two places. One, he tells the parable of the vineyard. And he's, he goes away, and what happens in the story? He sends different people asking for the payment for what's due to the owner. Finally, what does he do at the end of the story? He sends his son. What does he say at the end of this parable? He says, what's going to happen to these vineyard owners? He's going to come destroy them. And Jesus says at the end of Matthew 23, he said, the blood that you guys have been shedding for the thousands of years, the blood from Abel to Zechariah, who was slain between the altar, it's going to be required of this generation. Said with such sadness and compassion. And what the Jews went through is terrible. But God was doing something. Christianity, in some ways, it was a completely different than Judaism. It was the same God, it was the same heart, the same law and the prophets, the same essence, but it had different ceremonial laws. When Christianity was spreading, there was a class of people that Christianity just spread like wildfire through, and it was the class of the God-fearers. These were, thank you. These were people who were very sympathetic to the Jewish ideals, but they didn't want to be circumcised. They didn't want some of these other ceremonials ceremonial procedures that you had to go through. So when the news came that you could now be grafted into true Israel without a rather painful procedure, it was very good news to a lot of people. And these people were the ones who were so receptive. You already see this in Acts. So Christianity was spreading throughout the country. Can you uh, get that? Before we, we go on, I just want to give you a quick geography lesson. I'll walk over here. Uh, Christianity, of course, started in Jerusalem, but when Jerusalem fell, Antioch became the, the next home of Christianity. It was the third largest city, you'll, you'll see it there, the third largest city in the empire. Another main city of early Christianity was Alexandria. Alexandria was in Egypt, as you can see, but it was home to some of the, the, the greatest thinkers in the world. There was a famous library at Alexandria. There was a museum there. Uh, there was a, a Jewish Greek, a Greekish Jew, <laughs> named Philo. He was, uh, what he did was he tried to make the Old Testament helpful to the Greeks. The Greeks believed that their writings were far superior to the vast barbaric writings of the Jews. So 
what Philo did was he interpreted the Old Testament allegorically. And some early church fathers picked up that idea. Part of the reason was the way this is what the Greeks were doing with their writing. For scripture to be inspired, there had to be an allegorical meaning to go along with it. So when they interpreted uh, Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey, they were finding spiritual meaning in the, in the text. Uh, you'll see uh, there's Rome. Uh, this is North Africa. Uh, there's Milan, uh, which is where Ambrose was from. Augustine was down here. Uh, Tertullian and uh, Clement was down there. Uh, this is Cappadocia, also now uh, it's Turkey. So as we get on, it'll become important to see where these things are so you understand where they're happening. Okay, so remember I said that the persecution at first was from the Jews, but then it started coming from the, the Romans. In AD 64, there was a fire that swept through Rome. It burned for a week, and then on and off for another three days. Rome had 14 sections. 10 of these were completely wiped out. A rumor started spreading around that Nero, there was a couple different, one was that he was trying to inspire an epic poem by watching Rome burn. <laughs> Nero offended the artists and the musicians of his day by claiming to be one of them. His, he was such an egotistical man. He committed suicide and his last words are, I feel a great artist is passing from this life. <laughs> but he didn't like these rumors that were spreading around that he had started this fire in Rome. So he needed a scapegoat. And he turned on the Jews. And he said, the Jews are the ones who started it. What he did to the Jews, I, I mean, uh, to the Christians, sorry, this is important. I gotta listen to what I'm saying so that what this is saying and what this is saying are the same thing. But what he said to the Christians, he just, he gave it to them. In such cruelty, he threw them to the lions until the lions were so full that they <laughs> didn't want to eat anymore. He would set them, he would hang them on top of a post, the original Roman candle, paint them in tar and set them on fire to light his garden parties. He would sew them in animal skins and let them duke it out with real animals. It was so bad that the Romans started feeling pity for the Jews, for the Christians. <clears throat> this is going to happen a lot where my mind goes blank, so just bear with me. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> Christians, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. So R Rome hated Christians. You know, Tacitus, who was telling us this story about Rome's cruelty, he said he blamed the group of Christians, of people who were hated for their abominations. He said they were haters of humanity. How did Rome see Christians? Well, for one thing, they saw them as superstitious. They saw them as worshippers of a donkey's head. That was a myth about the Jews that people just started attributing to Christians. 
They thought that Christians were cannibals because there was this talk about them eating my flesh and my blood. They thought there was grossly immoral orgies that went on in a Christian meeting. They thought they tied a dog to a lamp and when the lamp fell over, the Christians just went at it in, in, in incestuous ways because they talked about brothers and sisters. They thought that they ate infants. One rumor that was going around for Christ, about the Christians was that they hid a newborn in a huge loaf of bread and they had the new person who was uh, joining Christianity cut the bread and in so doing he unknowingly killed the infant. And when he found out what he had done, he wasn't going to tell anybody and so in doing this they were able to keep all new members of joining this. Uh, so, I mean, these were, these were the types of rumors that were going around. A lot of distaste for these Christians. Another reason that Rome hated the Christians, you notice how he said he, he called them the haters of humanity, is because so much of Roman culture was tied to serving pagan gods. And Christians didn't want anything to do with pagan gods. That meant they were avoiding a lot of the main holidays, the festivals, the legal proceedings, which were done in the names of, of, of gods. Uh, at first, no, no Christians were allowed to join the army, uh, even though it started spreading through the army. Uh, you couldn't send your kids, they didn't send their kids to public school. They just stood apart from society completely. Christians were accused of being atheists because they didn't believe in these different Roman gods. So Christianity stood apart, but Christians also had a distinct attitude towards life. Uh, a common Roman practice was if you had a daughter, you didn't want a big family, but you wanted a son. So if you had a daughter, it was completely acceptable to take her to the edge of the woods and let her die of exposure there. The Christians said, no, all life is precious in God's sight. And so a lot of them would wait and they would actually pick up these babies and nurture them to life. But Roman, but Christians stood out. Now there's a fascinating letter from the, emperor, the governor of Bithynia, which is up there somewhere. He was wondering, he wrote to the governor Trajan in around 111 AD. He says, in matters this complicated, I need your advice. What to do with the Christians? Is it enough to murder a Christian, to condemn a Christian to death simply for saying he's a Christian? Or does there also have to be another crime that he's committed? What about if someone says, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not. Can I let them off the hook? He said, I didn't know what to do when I first presided over this hearing, so I asked them to recant. I asked them a second time, I asked them a third, and when they refused to recant, I said, well, at the very least, this person should be killed for being so stubborn. <laughs> and he wiped them out. He went on to say he did some more research. He talked to some people who said, I was Christians. He asked them to curse Christ. He said, because I hear that that is something a true Christian will never do. So that started being his test. Curse Christ and you can go. It's proof that you weren't. But then he started to talk to Christians who were a part of Christianity, or had been and had left the faith. And he asked them, well, what, what do you guys do? And he said, look, all we did was on the morning, Sunday, we'd go, sing songs as if to a god, and we'd make a vow to each other saying that we wouldn't commit 
theft, we wouldn't commit adultery, and, and, and some other things. He said, that's, that's all we did. In this letter, uh, the guy who was writing Trajan says, Plenty, thank you. Uh, he said he also tortured two deaconesses, but all he got out of them was horrid and gross superstitions. That was his, his phrase. So he wanted to, I asked Trajan, what do I do with the Christians? What is your advice in this matter? And Trajan's reply set the common standard for how you treat Christians. He said, how, what you've done is right. Don't hunt them out as criminals. Don't waste your time hunting them out. But if they're brought before the authorities, force them to recant or put them to death. Tertullian said this is a terribly unjust sentence because on the one hand it acknowledges that they're not harmful to the empire, so don't waste your resources on hunting them out. But on the other hand it says to kill them if they don't recant. It doesn't make much logic sense, but it makes a lot of political sense for the Roman because what they needed was submission to the, the emperor. But so Think about it. That, for the first few couple hundred years of Christianity, was the policy. That you were safe, you weren't going to be hunted out, but you had to know that at any moment, someone could present your name to the authorities. I mean, you, you try to be nice to your neighbor, because if you, if you make your neighbor a man, and he knows you're a Christian, all he has to do is take you over to the authorities, and it's over for you. So Christians, in their relations with other people, had a very tenuous relationship with those around them, because at any time they could be brought before the authorities. Now, we've talked about how they were thought of just being uncultured, superstitious, grossly immoral people. In the 100s, there was a group of writers who called the Apologists, where they wrote to the emperor and they wrote to the other people explaining what Christianity was about, arguing that it was philosophically sound and that it was not grossly immoral. I, I want to highlight one, his name was Justin Martyr. He got his name Martyr because he was martyred for his faith. Uh, he was born around 100 AD. He, was very, he was, went to school to be a philosopher. So he tried lots of different philosophers. He tried Stoicism, they didn't believe in God so he rejected that. Uh, he tried another philosopher who only seemed to be interested in getting his paycheck. He tried another philosopher who had all these boring courses in, in music and geometry where his heart just wasn't. He finally found, settled on, on Platonism, which was sort of related to Plato's teaching that saw God as an ineffable, supreme being, oneness. You could only describe this God using negative terms. You couldn't say what he was. You could only say he was um, incomprehensible. This God was completely powerful. He was eternal. He was unchangeable. He was immutable, which is the same thing. He, but this God had no passions. I'm spending a little extra time clarifying this and explaining this because this concept of God resulted in some hang-ups for some of the early church fathers. Uh, Justin Martyr, this colored his, his perspective on God. And he later would try to say that this God you believe is not that different from the God that we're proclaiming. 
Back to Justin's conversion story. Here he was trying all these different philosophies when he met an old man on the beach. And this man explained to him how Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And Justin's exact words were, let me if I can just... He said, A fire was kindled. I fell in love with the prophets and the men who loved Jesus. I reflected on their words and found their philosophy alone was true and profitable. I wish everyone felt the way I do. He continued to wear his philosopher's cloak in hopes that it would spark conversations. The philosophers would, obviously, they'd wear something so that you could, if you had a philosophical question, you could go to them. Justin Martyr, he wrote to the emperor, saying things like, you know, you're upset at us for not worshiping you, but what the emperor needs is not to be worshiped, he needs to be served. And you will find that Christians are your most valuable servants. And by the way, we're not praying to you, but we're praying for you. He also tried to tell people, we're not superstitious or grossly immoral. In fact, he gave one of the earliest accounts of an early Christian church service. I just want to read you this, because there was these uh, horrible rumors going around that what these Christians actually did, because Christians, uh, I'll get into this a little bit, and what Christian life was like. But Christians didn't allow non-baptized members to partake in their communion. But this is what he said. Let me just find this. He said, On the day called the day of the sun, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts us to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. So, Justin ended up dying, probably for the reason I said someone probably became jealous. The rumor is someone lost a, an argument to him and turned him over to the em emperor, and he was killed under Marcus Aurelius, if you've seen Gladiator. Marcus Aurelius is the emperor. He was known as the philosopher king. Uh, very common sense, wise man, but someone who was superstitious. And one of the main reasons that Christians were persecuted is because they thought they were not worshiping gods. It's the Roman gods who blessed us. These Christians are not worshiping our gods. So Christians became the whipping post. Anytime uh, Tertullian said, when the Tiber floods, when the earth shakes, when a fire breaks out, when a famine comes, it's, the cry raises up all over the land, Christians to the lions. Christians became the whipping post because they thought, Christians are not worshiping our gods, the ones who are responsible to blessing us, therefore we need to get, do away with the Christians. And that's why Marcus Aurelius persecuted these Christians. It was the end of Marcus Aurelius' reign that the end of Roman peace. After that point, from about 180, and we'll see this tomorrow, Rome became fractured for a number of reasons. I'll, I'll hopefully have time to get into that. Uh, Justin Martyr also has a book called uh, Dialogues with Trifo the Jew. Very interesting where he tries to show the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how Christ fulfilled the prophecies, and that Christians with the new Israel. Okay, so moving on. What was early Christianity like? Christianity spread usually among the lower classes, spread among women, 
among slaves, among traitors. I just gave you that description of the church service. But what I found curious is that Sundays were a time of celebration. Communion was focused on Christ's victory over death. It wasn't until much later that, that the communion time became, be, was sorrowful and full of introspection. The Christians had that time. That was on Wednesday and Friday. They fasted on Wednesday and Friday, possibly to do with the night Jesus was betrayed and the night Jesus was crucified. But Sunday was a time for celebration. During the time of communion, you had to be baptized in order to partake of the communion. And before you could be baptized, you had to have in, in pretty intensive training. It would be a year, anywhere from a year to three years. And you were called a catechumen, where you were study, studying about the basics of Christianity. See, at first, uh, when it was mainly Christ, Jews who were coming, they knew a lot of the basics of their faith. It wasn't that much it was to tweak. But when the Gentiles started flooding in, tons of instruction that had to be. But after you had been a catechumen for so long, once a year, usually on Easter, and remember, this is one historian recording one part of Christianity. There was, it was different in different pockets. But on Easter day, the men and the women were separated, and sans clothes, you would step into the water. Before you were stepped into the water, you were asked three questions that had to do with the rule, the early, uh, the basics of Christianity. I'll, I'll get into that more tomorrow. But you, you, asked, you answered those questions, you dipped into the water. When you came out, you were given a brand new white cloak, signifying your newness. You were given a drink of water, signifying that you were cleansed on the outside, and now you were cleansed on the inside. You were given milk and honey to show that you had entered the promised land. And then, after this, they would go back to the church service. The church, it's funny how our, our terminology is so affected by time, but they'd go back to their meeting place, and these people would get to celebrate the love feast, the joyous partaking of communion for the first time in their life. Something else that Christians did, but first when they met together, they tried to always meet every Christian in one city in one place. Unity was very important to the early Christians. But when they got too big for one meeting place, what they would do was they would have a master loaf of bread that they would send fragments of it to all the different congregations in the town, signifying their oneness. The other thing that they did was they recorded the names of all the bishops in the, in the Roman world, and they would spend time every Sunday praying for them. The bishop soon became the head elder. It's different. Uh, we'll get into tomorrow morning why the bishop arose, the, the needs of the first, century, first couple centuries that he met. So that's a glimpse into early Christian life. Now, why did Christianity spread? This is also in the, on the, the test. Christianity spread rapidly for several reasons, but I'm just going to highlight four of them. The first one is that men were so convinced that it was true. They had a fire and a conviction that would, they were willing to die for. They were so convinced of the fact of the resurrection that they were willing to abandon long-held customs and rituals and live completely for God. That was the one reason. These people were absolutely convinced. This didn't hurt to have the Holy Spirit firing that conviction up either. Second reason is it met felt needs. In Rome, a lot of debauchery, decay, 
and sin brings emptiness. No matter what, sin brings emptiness. So when you're looking at a Roman culture where the theater was real, nothing simulated, that's as far as I'm going to go, terribly dark and wicked, and it's just so common. I mean, people say, boy, never before have young men had access to all the... No. Back then, walking out into the streets, theaters, I mean, it was there. It's terrible. And that kind of debauch living brings an emptiness. And people were hungry. And that's what Christianity brought. Christian, this third reason was an expression of love that people saw. This is one of the most exciting things. Let me just go on a, on a brief tangent. One of the most powerful aspects, coolest things about Christianity, is what it does to relationships. You know, we're designed for relationship to be in communion with other people. But what sin breaks relationships. Sin makes us lonely. Sin makes us bite people's heads off. It makes us self-centered. It gives us false expectations in a relationship. And you go on and on about how sin destroys relationships. And the more overcome you are by self-centeredness and sin, the more fractured the relationships are going to be. But what Christianity does in forgiving our sins, giving us a clear conscience, enabling us to feel loved by God so that we can love other people, that we can start putting other people's needs ahead of us, it now allows porcupines to live together in the same room without constantly stabbing and piercing each other. And when they do, it allows for forgiveness based on the example of Christ. And this is what people saw in Christians. Look at how they love each other, how they served for the orphans, how their, the deep love they had for the, the lack of fighting in their communities. That was the third reason. The fourth reason was that Christianity received a lot of publicity from the martyrdoms. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And God worked it so that when people saw in the public games, in the public square, Christians dying for their faith. It gripped them. They were so stunned. What is this person willing to die for? I want to close tonight by looking at three martyrs. I'm going to tell you their stories. We're going to go past nine. But I want you to listen to these stories of these men. These are just three snapshots into what some of the early Christians had to go through. The first martyr we're going to look at, his name was Ignatius, one of the earliest church fathers. Legend has it that he was the little boy, the little baby who sat on Jesus' lap when he said, let the little children come and do not forbid them. That's the time period he lived. He was born right around the time of Jesus' ministry, and this happened around 107. He was captured for his faith. Most likely he was taken to satisfy the public's thirst for blood. But on his way to Rome, where he was going to be thrown to the lions, he was the Bishop of Antioch, he wrote seven letters to the different churches, pleading with them. He said, I'm, I'm, my biggest fear right now, as I'm on my way to death, is that kindness is going to overtake you, and you're going to kidnap me, and you're going to prevent me from getting to die for my faith. He said, don't rob me of that privilege. What I want is to attain Christ. He said, come fire come beasts, come beheading, come torture. Let it come so long as I can attain Jesus Christ. In this letter, he also had some words of instruction. He urged obedience to the bishops. He said there's a lot of falsehood. The ones that he was dealing with were 
Gnosticism and Ebionites, people who were, the Ebionites believed that uh, you had to be Jewish and you had to adopt the whole Jewish practice in order to be saved. He was arguing against those and said, listen to your bishops, they'll know. Uh, you may think it's strange he's pointing to bishops, you have to remember he didn't have pocket New Testaments to point to. He could only point to the living carriers of the New Testament, of the Bible, which were the bishops, the spiritual leaders, and he urged them. He also urged them to Smith anyway. But he ended up dying for his faith. Second martyr we're going to look at is Polycarp, who maybe knew Ignatius. Polycarp, this happened in around 165 AD, also probably during Marcus Aurelius's reign. Polycarp possibly knew John, uh, but he knew at least one person who was in between. Polycarp, at this point, was possibly at least in the late 90s, maybe early 90s. The crowd started calling for him. He was a famous bishop. People heard that they were clamoring for him. They hid him away. But while he was in hiding, he had this trance, and he saw his pillow suddenly burst into flames. And he says, it needs to be that I will be burned alive for my faith. And from that point, he quit hiding. Shortly, the Roman authorities uh, tortured some servants, found his whereabouts. When, he ca when they came to Polycarp's house, he welcomed the men in, even though he knew what they were going to do. He said, give these men food, water, as much as they want to have. Give it to them. He said, I'm going to come with you, but I just ask that you give me one more hour to spend praying. And they overheard him, Polycarp, just exalting in God. They were so amazed at the fellowship that this old man was having with God. And when he came with them, these soldiers started feeling so bad that they were bringing this kind old man to be slaughtered. As he approached the arena, several of his friends heard a voice say, be strong, Polycarp, play the man. He took that as encouragement. And he stood before the proconsul. What you see is this proconsul pleads with Polycarp. It's almost like he doesn't want to come, he doesn't want to go through with this martyrdom. He says, look, just say, away with the atheists, and this can be done. So Polycarp slyly looks at the godless crowd who's filling the arena and says, okay, away with the atheists. That wasn't what he meant. So the proconsul says, look, all you have to do, curse Christ, and you can live. You're old. Just curse Christ. He says, for 86 years, I have served my king, and he has never let me down. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He said, well, we'll bring you to the lions. Just repent. He said, I can't repent from something better to worse. You only repent from something worse to better. But I'm not going to abandon this. And he said, okay, then we'll burn you alive. He said, your fire only burns for an hour, but you don't know about the eternal flame that never goes out. This, by this time, the, aud the audience was clamoring for his death, and it said in just hardly any time, when they found out that he wasn't going to go to the lions, that he was going to get burned alive, people got wood and hay and stubble so fast. Uh, probably some legend was added to this, but... He, they didn't even tie him to the post. They let him on fire. And he finally had to, what the 
saw that it wasn't burning him fast enough, they finally stabbed him to death. But this, the story was written as an encouragement to the other people. The third martyr I want to look at is actually a few of them. This happens around the start of the 200s. Uh, the emperor's name was Septimus Severus, and he made a law saying that there could be no new converts to Christianity. When he found this group of young people who were catechumens in training for Christianity, they had violated the law of converting to Christianity, and they had to be taken and killed. Now, Perpetua was a 22-year-old young woman still with a nursing infant. She had a father who had doted on her and loved her immensely. She kept a journal during this time that we have. Her father pleads with her, saying, don't do this. Haven't I been the dad who's loved you your whole life? Can't you do this for your son? Can't you do this for your family? Do you know we'll never be able to have a light word between us if anything happens to you? We'll be so racked with grief. And she said, Dad, can you call a vase or a water pot anything other than what it is? I said, no. I said, you can't call me. I'm a Christian. You can't call me anything else. I can't change that. She was thrown in a den waiting trial she also had a maidservant named Felicity, who was about eight months pregnant. Felicity was afraid that she wouldn't have the baby in time and she would be prevented from being martyred with her friends. But miraculously, according to her, she went into labor early. And as she was in, in labor pains, crying out, the Roman guards started taunting her, saying, you can't even handle labor. How are you going to be able to handle the tortures of the ring tomorrow. She said, right now I'm suffering in my own strength. But tomorrow someone else was going to be suffering with me. Uh, back to Perpetua. Her brother said, look, seek God for vision. Maybe you'll be able to find out whether you'll be free or not, whether God is going to save you. She had a fascinating dream. She had a dream that there was a very narrow ladder going up into heaven. All along the sides of this ladder were daggers. And if you weren't careful how you climbed this ladder, these daggers would come and stab you. And at the bottom of the ladder was a dragon. She saw Severus start to climb this ladder ahead of her. It's not clear whether Severus was her husband or just the person who was teaching the catechumen, the, the catechumen class or whether he was both. But she saw Severus climbing the ladder and when he got to the top of the ladder, he turned around and said, follow me, Perpetua. And she stepped on the dragon's head and started climbing up the ladder. And when she got to the top, there was these fields full of people in white garments. And there was a shepherd who was milking sheep. But he gave, her, he gave her a drink of this. And she said, welcome. I'm so glad you made it. And she woke up from the dream and she knew what it meant that she would have to climb that ladder, that she would have to die for her faith, and that Septimus would die first. The next day, they were thrown into the ring. They were going to be killed by wild heifer. A tortured heifer went in there and tossed them around, gouged them, 
Felicity was so grateful that she could be martyred on this day. When the, the heifer failed to kill Perpetua, she made sure she had her hair retied because she didn't want to look like she was mourning. She wanted to stay true to the end. So the next way to, to do it was to be killed by sword. Before this, Septimus had been, had been attacked by a, a jaguar and was unconscious. But they took them to the tribunal. Septimus was killed. Not Septimus. Severus. You know what? Anyway, his name, do some research on that. But he, he was killed first, just like in our dream. And when the time came, the soldier was trembling, having to kill a young woman, that his first attempt to decapitate her hit a collarbone, and she just screamed out in agony. And she took the sword again and held it up to her throat, and she died. That's the kind of, of courage and stamina that these Christians had. That's the kind of grace when the Holy Spirit came on these people. Just three glimpses, the stories that can be told. Not all the stories are happy endings. There's stories of whole groups being rounded up and there being so many people that they actually suffocate, suffocated while they were waiting for their trial. Some people, as soon as they heard the roars of the animals in the theater, aborted, according to the chroniclers. They left the faith, they just couldn't handle it. It was, a, it was a trying time. Perpetua's father came back the night before with a baby. Said, look, do this for your son. Can't you, you just, don't you care about your son? She, she persevered. Because that was the only choice she had. She wasn't going to abandon her king. Okay. It's time for a view. Okay, guys, do some stretching because the one who gets to answer it, Tim, do you mind being a, a judge for me? <clears throat> the first one to stand up has the floor. Do not blurt out the answer until you're acknowledged. Because I even have a scorecard here. five questions. Some of these are worth three points. Some are worth two points. Uh, if, if something's three points, it's because there's multiple items. So for every one that you get right, it's one point. For every one you get wrong, it takes a point away. If you can only remember two of three, then you only get two points. A lot of them are just one point, though. Okay. What was Pax... For two points, what was Pax Romana and how long did it last? Jesse. Pax Romana was the period of Roman peace, and according to which historical source you refer to, it went from B.C. 
Good enough. <laughs> now, I don't know what the gender count is here. If there's a lot more guys than girls, don't worry, girls, you will not be penalized. For one thing, you have a major intellectual advantage over us. In spite of that, in spite of that, you're still going to have to win in proportion to it, by the same ratio of guys to girls. So if, if it's two to one, you're going to have to have over two to one points to win. But the guys are off to a good start with two points. <laughs> Name for three points. Name three false rumors that were spread about early Christians. Persecuted Christians. Oh, isn't it just simply because one, there were horrible rumors; two, that they wouldn't worship um, the Caesar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was more to it than that. Um, I'm going to give a, a, a girl a chance to stand up and think of another one. I'm going to give the guys just one point for that. Bang on, good job. Okay, uh, name three reasons Christianity spread. Ooh, I think Jesse again. Well, three reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, three reasons is because there was great publicity. Mm -hmm. and, um, that, was, that was one reason. You know, another reason was because the, the followers of Christ were against. Another reason was because they showed great love. And the fourth reason was because they had <laughs> needs that the people have. Exactly. <laughs> Final question for one point, girls. <laughs> Communion was used as a time for evangelism. True or false? False! <laughs> 
So, score is 10 to 2. <laughs> You'll get five more sessions. I'm not going to do quiz after the one on Sunday, so the one after the sixth session. Good. Now, um, tomorrow we have got so much stuff to go through. So, again, I, I ask for grace. See you tomorrow at 9.30. Just a reminder to connect with your host, and uh, I can help you as far as rides and that because it's kind of complicated. If you haven't got your own ride, we'll do what we can for you. And there's coffee and snacks on the left here. Take your time. There's no rush to go home. <laughs>